Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. That's so nice of you. Thank you guys for coming out. Very excited to be here. In 2001, I'm 21 years old, and I find myself driving on Valley Road in Clifton, New Jersey. And I'm driving behind this pickup truck, the kind you'd see like a landscaping company use. And I'm listening to the Smiths, who, if you're not familiar, the Smiths are a, a pop group. They were very, very popular in the early to mid 80s. They're from Manchester, England. Uh, their front person is Morrissey, who still, he tours a lot. He actually just played King's Theater in Brooklyn about a week or two ago. Maybe you've heard of him. He's a kind of like a legendarily melodramatic sad sack, and I'm clearly trying to rip off his haircut right now. And I'm behind this truck. The truck puts on the blinker. Uh, the driver has decided he's going to turn left. And I don't even slow down. I, I swing out. I'm going to go around him on the right, and as I do so, he starts coming back into the right lane. It, it's very clear the driver has decided he's not going to make the turn, and it's also clear I am in his blind spot. He does not see me. And I have time to think to myself, you should hit the brakes. And then I think, no, don't. Because this way, it's just a car crash. And this way, your parents don't have to go around town being the parents of the kid who killed himself. Because we don't judge people for dying in car crashes, but we do judge people when they die of suicide. It's one of the strangest things I think we've given ourselves permission to do as a culture. And honestly, I think it's really mostly a branding problem. No, I do. I, I, I really think suicide has a, a branding problem because it, it has a tagline. It has a catchphrase. And I bet a lot of us know it. it. It sucks. It's really condescending. I bet we've heard it. Suicide, the coward's way out. I bet a lot of us have heard that. What a shitty tagline. Tagline's supposed to get you like pumped up, right? Like Nike, that's a good tagline. Just do it, you know? And I'm not saying that suicide should take that one at all. That's not what I'm saying. Really, none of the big ones apply here. Although, I mean, Burger King, have it your way. That is comedian Chris Gethard straddling the line between pleasure and pain for his new off-Broadway show, Chris Gethard, Career Suicide. It deals with depression, addiction, and the 30-somethings rise to comedies rapidly evolving big time. This Upright Citizen is ours for the hour. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, listeners, Sunday, November 10th at Richmond's historic National Theater, Full Disclosure Live presents an evening with Not A Surf, one of my favorite rock bands on 25 years of glory, of collapse, of rebuilding, of grit, of coming out and hustling their name back into the big time. A live recording, hear the stories, then hear the music. The band's going to perform a full concert. You can get your tickets at facebook.com slash fullderadio. You can go to the Nationals website. You can go to notasurf.com. Definitely do not miss it. November 10th at the National in RVA. Full disclosures, evening with Not A Surf. Hear the stories, then hear the music. Join us. Joining us from NPR's New York City studios in Bryant Park, the guest of honor for the hour, Chris Gethard, comedian, New Jerseyan. You know him from the beautiful Anonymous podcast, the hit podcast. Other credits include Inside Amy Schumer, Broad City, Parks and Recreation. He's all over the place. Upright Citizens Brigade, of course. And this is Key, the new off-Broadway comedy, Chris Gethard, Career Suicide. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good. How about you? I'm great. And here in studio with me is the lovely and mellifluous Erin Mahone of It Runs in the Family fame. She's a speaker, entertainer, author of the book Life, Motherhood, and the Pursuit of Sanity. It's going to be a fine show indeed. Yes, it is. Thank you for having me. Chris, I want to understand what that WTF moment feels like when you're up on that stage Exposing your very innards to the entire world. I understand when it's done in an essay or on the two-dimensional element of paper talking about suicide or substance abuse or the various forms of medication that you've been on over, over 15 years. But when you're there in short sleeves and fully exposed to an audience and eliciting both uh, long gaps of silence and uproarious laughter, what is going on in your head? Well, it really varies night to night and uh it can be very intense like there's uh like even last night last night i did the show and there was a girl in the front row and i I noticed that she at a certain point was looking away from me um which is you know kind of an odd choice in the very front row of a one-man show it's not like she was looking at another actor i'm the only, i'm the only game in town you know and then i saw she took some tissues out of her bag and then 
when I looked uh, closer, I realized she was bawling. Um, and as a comedian, that's not, you know, the usual goal to get someone to break down crying in the front row where you can see them. This is very intense. And we made direct eye contact and I started crying too. And that's a moment where it's like, well, this, this evening is a little different than some others. And, and, uh, you know, and then there's some nights where the laughs are just really big and, and where I'm like, all right, let me keep getting to the next punchline because this crowd is just hot. And, and it feels like how stand-up can sometimes feel for me. So really pretty wildly varies night to night. I remember there was one show where it was met with almost no laughs, and I was in my head like, okay, I'm bombing. Like, you're going to bomb sometimes. Every comedian bombs. And then at the end, they gave it a standing ovation, and, and it was explained to me, oh, there's people watching this as a theater piece, and you're talking about some stuff that's not funny, and they're appreciating that side of it. So it's really kind of a little bit of a maelstrom. And, you know, comedians, I think we train ourselves to sort of like work the audience and, and not just predict the reactions, but almost dictate them. And, and with this material, that's pretty impossible. I mean, the very title of the show, Career Suicide, is pegged to uh, the real turning point in your life was uh, that moment uh, What on the dark New Jersey road. Was it at 2001, if you can take us back for our listeners who aren't as familiar with your story? Yeah, I tell sort of, I think like kind of the, the story that really kicks things off and that I think sets the bar with what we're all going to be dealing with for this evening of, of so-called comedy is I, uh, I had an incident in 2001, which I was, I was 21 years old then, and, and I think anyone who does research on this stuff knows that it's, it's pretty common for people of that age. If May I just quickly ask you, was that pre-post 9-11? I was in Manhattan during 9-11, and I just remember the world was kind of binary before and after. It was a couple months before. Mm. I think it was... When is Columbus Day weekend? My brother just saw my show last night, and he said he remembered it, that it was Columbus Day weekend that this happened. Isn't that October? Um, so, yeah, September, October, something like that. And, yeah, uh, yeah I, uh, I was in an incident where I was in a car crash, and um, what, no one, what no one knew at the, at the time was that I, I could have prevented it. It's not like I set out. It's not like I made a decision, I'm going to go crash my car. But I, I was in a situation where I realized that I was in danger and... You know, everybody, when you're driving, there's times where you're like, oh, my God. And I, I just kind of like, you know, I, on a normal day, I think all of us hit the brakes in those situations. And I just chose to not hit the brakes because it was like this impulsive, well, this is no one will know that no one will know that this was intentional if I do it this way. And that was um, that was like the that was the most danger I've ever put myself in. And that's the second story I tell in the show. I tell that about five minutes into a 75-minute show, so really definitely lays the foundation for something that's going to be a little dark, but then there's also some really intentionally funny parts, and, and yeah, that was uh, that was the big incident, and Valley of course, Road in of Clifton, course, New Jersey. David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar or Def Leppard wasn't playing on your CD. It was Morrissey and the Smiths, damn it, of all people. Yeah, yeah, I am very cliche in that way, a sad guy who loves the Smiths. That is, I, I fit the stereotype. Sure. Chris, I'm curious to know what in your life made you ready to tell this story and why you think, um, you know, I've noticed over the last several years that people are definitely more um, self-revelatory in their uh, comedy and in in their uh, storytelling. And why do you think now was the time to tell this story? And what do you think in our society makes people more ready to hear it? It's a really great question, and uh, you know, I look at people like Maria Bamford, who I'm a I'm a huge fan Me of. Me too. And she, yeah, and she's just putting it all on the table, and it, it's so inspiring. And in a really big, you know, on Netflix, on a huge platform, and Mark Maron, I think for years has, you know, guided some discussions um, into dark places on his podcast. And there are um, very clearly some old world values that have long, I think, determined how we talk about this stuff. I know in my experience, like. My parents, blue-collar Irish Catholic people from Jersey, like, we're not really talking about our feelings all that often, you know? And I think there was always a mentality of, like, you go, you, you deal with that behind closed doors, you don't tell anybody about it. And I think that that leads to a lot of trouble and it leads to a lot of pain that is unnecessary. And um, I'm not sure exactly why right now some comedians are kind of rallying to push back against those values, but I'm glad it's happening. And for me... I don't know. Like I had, you know, my, I'm very good friends with Mike Birbiglia and, and he kind of challenged me to start talking about it a little more honestly than I was on stage. And, and that was a big turning point. And also not to get too dark, but, um, 
a few years ago, I think many people remember there was a, a student at Rutgers University named Tyler Clementi yeah, who was yeah. bullied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he 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 was. People may remember he was he was a young gay man who who his roommate put a sexual experience of his on a webcam without him knowing, and and he jumped off the George Washington Bridge. And my story is not exactly the same, but I do remember when that happened. I got on the phone with my brother because. I remember saying, like, I went to Rutgers University. I got bullied. I lived on a floor with the whole lacrosse team my freshman year. You can imagine what life was like for an artsy <laughs> kid with glasses living with the whole lacrosse team. It was not good. I was, like, pretty – They were. it was pretty tormented. It got physical a couple times. And I remember, I remember so vividly feeling like I know exactly what it feels like to be a completely depressed outsider kid at Rutgers University freshman year – getting a spotlight shown on you for your differences and and that that was a big moment where i was like you know just very aware that i wasn't telling the whole truth with my own story and that um not not that i have any hero complex or that i i I thought about like could i have saved him in particular it wasn't that but it it was just a kind of a feeling of being so fed up and and feeling like i don't want to be scared anymore i don't want to think about other people who were in the position i was in you know, like, like I, I think I didn't have anyone to talk to, and I also was kind of made to feel like it wasn't okay to talk about this stuff, and uh, and I, I never wanted to perpetuate that. I wanted to do my part. Chris, I have a couple questions about depression and anxiety and the, and the stigma that still really follows in this. There's been an explosion of celebrities. Aaron and I talk about this all the time, whether you talk about Kristen Bell or Demi Lovato or look, you know, just scan the news in one day, Miranda Kerr. She talks to a magazine and says, I fell into a really bad depression after her split from Orlando Bloom. Up until recently, a lot of people would go into, you know, check in somewhere for quote unquote exhaustion. During the Victorian era, it would be called melancholia. Uh, but as you step back from this and and also, you know, you talk about being on, on the Mark Barron show, uh, Robin Williams uh, was a guest of his and someone who gave us so much joy and so much pleasure and happiness over his life was battling with depression and substance abuse. You find that it's, and I don't want it to be cliche, like, you know, the the, the metaphor that you hate, the, the sad clown. Sad clown, right. Which, you know, somebody has to kind of put to rest. But why is this, uh, to your mind, so common in, in people in the creative arts and people who entertain and uh, sing for others? I mean, I, I recently have been listening to a lot of Jerry Rafferty the Scottish musician and, and Baker Street and everything else. And his whole life was almost like a cry for help in his lyrics for his depression and alcoholism. But I think that we're only finally coming to terms with this pop culturally right now in 2016. Yeah, I am very wary of the whole sad clown myth and the, the you know, you have to be messed up to be creative thing. I think it's dangerous, keeps people in pain. But I do think there's some validity to the idea of creative people. Um being known for this. And I think there's a, two things. Two things that I think about is, one, I wonder if it's more common amongst creative people or if it's just that creative people live more publicly so that there are times when it hits and we see it. Like, you know, like you say, someone breaks up with Orlando Bloom, it's constantly being asked about it in the tabloids, it's probably a higher likelihood chance that they wind up talking about it. I don't know if that means that it's more common. I do wonder, there is a part of me that really feels like if you're someone who's going to, you know, comedians make jokes, musicians write songs, and they're, they're, I think there's an argument to be made that people who are doing that are actually kind of commenting on the world around them. Like, comedians observe things, process them, and then offer up opinions about what's absurd about life. I think you could say that that's kind of what stand-up is in a certain viewpoint, and you look at certain, you know, musicians and their songs are really kind of analyzing their experience and kind of trying to speak to their experience. And I think people who are prone to maybe analyzing what's around them and then regurgitating it up are probably people who are observers who feel a little bit more prone to being outside looking in. And that's how they're able to comment upon these things. So I can imagine that people who feel like outsiders are prone to both artistic pursuits and maybe depression and those things can go hand in hand that way. Well, I'm I'm still curious though as to why it's, it's like a paradox. You have some of the most high-profile people in sports. I mean, gosh, you know, I I was listening to NPR the other day and some West Coast show had Steve Young, you know, 49ers stud, Hall of Fame quarterback, Super Bowl guy talking about 
the awful anxiety and depression that he faced every time he got on the field. Uh, it seems like we've hit a tipping point where uh, people are finally coming out this year. And even though many insurance <laughs> companies, most insurance companies still don't cover therapist visits, they kind of look at that as like an elective luxury. You remember back in the day, Tipper Gore was the champion for mental health, that Something has happened this year where there may have been a tipping point where this is not some exotic malady, that it's something that really uh, a lot of people are open talking about now right there with mono or, or you know, busting a hip. Yeah, it's very odd. It's very, it's very interesting that the dam has sort of broken. And I, I wish I wish I could I wish I could pinpoint why a little bit better than I can. It's it's hard to say, but I can just say that I'm I'm really happy that it has because i know that the you know the the fact that people are more open to talking about this is is i just think about who i was 15 years ago when that wasn't the case and it was very very hard and very very lonely and you know i think probably the simple answer is enough people have suffered from this or have seen people in their lives suffer from this that we have hit a tipping point where people are saying this is not it's it's not the 1950s anymore. We can't just drink this away. You can't just you can't just hide this behind closed doors. There's it's it's there's too much, you know, there's too much. And I think you also see so many highly publicized cases of of you know, bullying in schools. You see you see you you know read these horrible stories about like fourth graders hanging themselves because they get bullied. You read horrible stories about people lashing out in in schools, young people and they become these high-profile sensationalized stories. And uh, to me, it, it feels like maybe across the board, we're just getting a little fed up. We're just getting a little fed up with handling it the way we used to, which led to no good. Chris, so much of what I address in the work that I'm doing is around my own family experiences with mental illness. My grandfather had schizophrenia a long, long time ago when it wasn't a thing that, you know, people could talk about. And when I started writing and doing my shows and talking about my family and my own experiences with anxiety and depression, I found that I got a lot of power out of that and uh, felt like I was taking back and reclaiming my own story and my ability to, to talk about things in a way that was healthy to me. But what I also found is that by doing that and doing it in front of audiences and by sharing it with the world, so many people have come to me and said, thank you for saying this out loud. And I'm curious to know how you have been impacted by sort of coming forward and saying these things out loud and in particular by career suicide. And it's so raw and it's it's so beautiful. What kind of reactions have you gotten from people in the audience? I know you mentioned, you know, the girl in tears in the front row uh, last night. but Or even fan emails or unsolicited feedback. Right. I'm just yeah. curious to get a thought. It's really, it's it's been very, um, very hard, but also very inspiring. I, I, I would actually say, like, when I first started doing this material, I was, I was just doing it at some stand-up shows and really doubted that it would work. And some nights it, it didn't. And some nights it really worked. And and it was it was hard to keep going, but the thing that kept me going was I noticed almost right away people started waiting around after shows and telling me their stories or telling me that it kind of spoke to them or something that they'd seen with someone else in their life. And that was very um, inspiring. And, and, and to realize that people were saying like, hey, like that rings true meant a lot because I just understand that for, for my experience as a kid that I didn't have that. So it was like, okay, maybe people are getting something out of this, but can be very intense. I've gotten, um, you know, I get, I get feedback all the time. I, I, I've had just last night had someone who saw the show and tweeted at me that her, her brother took his own life and, uh, and that meant a lot to her to be at the show. I've had messages from two different parents who lost children to suicide, who have messaged me and countless messages, um, from people who, have depression or, or, or relatives with depression. And, and, and I mean, just every day at this point because of career suicide and because of the, you know, word spreading of what it is, even from people who haven't seen the show, who are reading things about it or hearing things about it, people reach out and, uh, it's, it's, it's really opening. It's, it's on one level, it's making me feel very driven. Like, you know, there's, I'm, I'm aware that like, outside of any other comedy I've ever done or that I will do, this this might have a little bit more of an effect than anything I do for the rest of my life. And, and that's very, like, 
feels very good to be doing, trying to, you know, do my part, maybe say something, be a little brave, speak to what I've been through and, and see if I can actually do some good. But it's also like a little bit of sadness for me because I can't tell you how many messages I get from people who will start saying literally like, I have never heard of you. Like, they'll say, like, <laughs> I don't know who you are. I've never seen any of your work, but I read this thing or, or I heard a radio piece where you're talking about this and I'm just so glad someone's talking about it and here's my story. And that makes me really sad because I'm like, I am not a notable person. Like, the most high profile thing I've done is I'm like the boss who's on two episodes of Broad City every year. Like, that's not, <laughs> I should not be, there should not be a situation where someone's like, you're the only person I've heard talking about this, so I'm going to reach out to you blind. Like, that's, that speaks to a big problem. That speaks right. to a very big problem to me, that I'm the guy some people have to turn to, even though they don't know me. So it's really inspiring, keeps me going, makes me feel okay about getting on stage and sharing this stuff that will never be totally comfortable for me to share, but... There's also a little bit of an element of real exasperation where sometimes I get messages and realize, like, this person isn't comfortable talking to their parents. This person isn't comfortable reaching out to a doctor. They still feel like they need to keep this secret. They feel like they're not allowed to talk to about it, anyone about it, and I'm the, I'm the person. And that's sad because there should be far more resources. And at the very least... If you're going to, like, reach out to someone you see through the public sphere, it should be someone far more famous than me talking about this, like, for sure. For sure. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That is Chris Gethard, comedian, New Jerseyan. He is the brains, the, the, the sadism behind the Chris Gethard show, which, according to its <laughs> own website, is the most bizarre and often saddest talk show in New York City. And this is really in the context of the Robin Bird show, which you thought was, like, the apotheosis of New York City bizarre public access shows. His new off-Broadway comedy, Chris Gethard, Career Suicide, is very much in the press right now. Uh, I wanted to shift mildly to this call this act, Chris, on kind of what you've done in the context of all of your years at Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, which, after all, is supposed to be a farm system for Saturday Night Live. Everybody's waiting for Lorne Michaels to call and tap them and take them out of the, you know, double A, triple A system and up and, and, and their big break in Saturday Night Live. I heard your other interviews and the exasperation. I mean, you're very happy for friends, you know, like Moynihan going to SNL. And at the same time, you're very frank about being jealous that why are they getting their big break and not me? And yet I step back from this and I look at all this stuff you're doing on Fusion with podcasting, availing yourself of every possible media. Uh, right now in 2016 from Twitter to Snapchat, Facebook, you go on NPR, you you dabble between legacy and, and kind of millennial media. And a big part of me wonders, do you even need Saturday Night Live anymore? You have completely come out of the ether. Uh, you're, you're doing my show in the cheap seats here. And you're like almost an example if I put all of the talk of mental health aside of like a creative who is entrepreneurial just by dint of hustle and connections and espousal of social media and legacy media. You've already made it. You don't need Saturday Night Live. Yeah, I would uh, I would agree with that. I should I should point out that my real my most my feelings of of fear and and jealousy and uh, failure mostly sprung up around 2007 when I came very close to getting hired as a writer on SNL. So, you know you know what I realized from that experience was there was a lot of fear, there was a lot of soul searching, and I think especially in New York, comedians kind of convince themselves that SNL is is the only job, and that's not the case, and that's not SNL's fault that we all think that way. And you know, then there's a lot of sitcom jobs and a lot of writing jobs, and a lot of a lot of those jobs were ones that I was like, how come everyone around me is getting these things? And I mean, for years, everybody at UCB for years was like, you're the next guy, and then. It was like, nah, you weren't the next guy. That guy was the next guy. That lady wound up being the next guy. Oh, your students, your students from your improv classes are getting the jobs. It was really scary. But that experience is what encouraged me to become entrepreneurial, as you say. Like, I kind of realized I don't want to sit around waiting for anybody else's permission. And, in fact, like a lot of these sitcom jobs, I was, like, really, like, straining and struggling and fighting to get these jobs and then so mad I wasn't getting them. But then at the end of the day, I'm like, I don't even really watch sitcoms. Why am I mad about this? Why am I beating myself up? Why am I sad? Like, why am I chasing all these things that don't really speak to me or my character or my interests or my creativity? And I realize it's all ego. It's all chasing jobs. It's all 
it's all about like feeling validation from outside and ego and and that's what made me turn around and start things like the Chris Gethard show that's why I felt like I want to go take this thing to public access TV because I can't get on regular TV with the type of stuff that I like so let me find my way and that's why I wrote a book and I do my one-man show and I figured out the world of podcasting. Like These are all things, especially touring, going on the road as a stand-up where you get to actually meet like-minded people who maybe are outside the mainstream. It was, It's not a present-day stress or jealousy for me. But what pays the but bills, I'm, if I can get to brass tacks? I mean, we do a lot of things for exposure. I'm not paying you yeah. for this, this hour of your time, but what... You know what? What, what takes? <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought I was getting that notoriously legendary public radio money out of this. I'll send you something. You know what? I'll send you a gift card to uh, the Applebee's in Times Square or something. <laughs> you tell I me what your I... hangout is or Junior's Cheesecake, and I'll hook you up somewhere. There's some payola in this for you. Always the Applebee's. You nailed it. That's where, it, if you're ever in New York, you want to find me. Generally, I'm at the Applebee's You're in eating Times good. Square. You're eating. Look, I know there's a Jamba yeah. Juice downstairs at NPR New York. I <laughs> yes. Can, I can put in a call and give them my card. But tell me, what? how are you paying the bills? You're married now. Yeah. You don't have any children, but you have low overhead. Do you still live in Queens, like how do you get, where's the business aspect of this? A lot of us do it as a labor of love, but we can't make a living out of it. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. A bold question that most people are, uh, are too nervous about asking me, I think, out of some like, you know, social stuff and then more out of the fear of, of wondering My if man, I'm okay, you I'm... talk publicly about getting your nipples clamped and crying on public access TV. I mean, this is like the least yeah. NC-17 thing I can ask no, you. No, it's so. true. It's funny because I'm actually, you know, um, you know, not I'm not, not to be braggy. I'm actually doing better financially than I've ever been. Um, I mean, the Chris Gethard show, Moving to Fusion, was a real game changer for me. It went from being a public access show that I lost money on to being a, a job, and I'm extremely grateful um, that Fusion took a chance on the show, and, and uh, that's really good. And then, you know, a lot of it is. Um, you know, I, I do, I, am very, very lucky that my podcast became an unexpected success. A lot of that is because, uh, this American life was very kind and featured an episode on their show and it, it really locked in an audience that way. So I get some money from that. And then a lot of it is touring. A lot of it is, is, is going out on the road and doing stand up gigs. And I'm really grateful for that because you, you know, what I found was like, I was constantly, you know, being in entertainment, you are constantly at the mercy of gatekeepers, of casting agents, of people who make decisions about actors on TV shows, people who review writing packets, and it's constantly middlemen. There's agents, there's managers who have to even take a chance getting your stuff to those people. And what I found was that I, I keep finding ways to just kind of put it in my own hands. And touring has been really huge because it's not just a way, it's, it's, it's it's first of all it's a very enjoyable thing to go out and just be amongst people and you know you go and you do a club or you do a college and people show up and it's because you realize oh you're actually like working hard and people are finding it and they will come out and support you and that's super cool but it's also the most grassroots it is in my power it's if I can hustle and show that people show up to a club then I can I can go pick up some money and, and do that club and it's very much in my own hands and empowered and and uh I ser I really like existing outside the system and I'm I'm very lucky. So yeah, a lot of it is you know, the TV show, the podcast, the touring gigs. Um the TV show is only 10 weeks a year though, so I got to pay my rent the other 40 weeks of the year, but that's a very nice foundation and then the podcast has been a nice surprise. Do you sell and, dime uh, bags on the side of <laughs> No, nothing oh illegal. Gosh. Surprisingly, surprisingly, nothing illegal. I would be I'm far too anxiety driven to commit crimes. I would just live in constant fear of getting caught. But yeah, no, trying to think what the most underhanded side hustle I've ever had is. And I don't think there's anything outright illegal. I, I will say, I think the thing I've been extremely smart about is that I never, I, I have never once in my life been convinced that it's going to be okay six months from now. And that mm. has served me really well. Meaning like when... Preemptive paranoia. Right. Yeah, which always leads me to have another thing in my back pocket. Like when the public access show was really kind of hitting a stride, it was leading to me getting a lot of touring gigs. But I was like, man, I don't want to just rest on that. That could go away. So I started like writing my book and no one knew I was writing a book, but I did that really quietly. And then, you know, once that was over with, I started working on my first album. It's like I always... I always try to have something going on behind the scenes 
so that if the current thing falls through and turns into the disaster I assume it will, that I have a safety net. So I think working off the grid and outside the box has served me really, really well. But, you know, you kind of have to install your own infrastructure on that. Be really smart and responsible. And for me, that's like I have no safety net behaving the way I do. So I got to really be smart and have my own. So I always I don't have any like side hustles or illegal things, but I always have a back burner thing that I'm ready to fall back on when the current life falls apart, for sure. So I have a, a, a related sort of two-part question. One, uh, you know, the world that we live in now seems to, um, it appears at least that it's easier or to make your own opportunities and to um, work in the world of creativity and actually make a living at it than it once did. I don't, I don't know if that's just a perception thing or if there actually are more opportunities uh, for those who are, you know, intrinsically motivated and, uh, and entrepreneurial in spirit. But the other thing is that... Um, you know, the world of sort of alternative comedy used to be a thing that was in back rooms. And it seems to me that um, it's more become more mainstream. Like you can be a weird dude that talks about weird stuff and have a more mainstream audience now than you once upon a time could. Um, I'd love to hear your you know thoughts on uh, how comedy has changed and how the 21st century is making it possible for creative weirdos to uh, make a living in the world. Yeah, I think I think everything you're saying is dead on the money from my perspective. Like you think about alternative comedy and and you know, I was I was around kind of for the second wave of it um pretty early on. Uh and and it was it was a very like you needed to know about it and go seek it out and it was in these venues that were pretty non-welcoming and not even set up for performance and now Aziz Ansari is one of the most famous comedians in the world and and Nick Kroll and John Mulaney have a super funny show on Broadway. Like these guys were at the heart of of the wave of alternative comedy that I came up during. Right. They were as alternative as it gets, and mm-hmm. now they're very mainstream. But I don't think they've sold out, and I don't think their comedy is much different. It's just becoming more accepted. Very cool. You know, you see someone like Reggie Watts having a national platform, and it's like incredible to see. Like oh, I used to watch Reggie in like weird bars on the Lower East Side, and <laughs> right, he would exactly. blow all our minds, and no one wanted to follow him, and and. Uh, and now he's on, you know, he's on TV all the time, every night. And uh, it's super cool, very inspiring. It also means that the stuff that is still underground is getting even weirder and more experimental, which <laughs> I really love. Um, but I do think you can see the effect of, th- you know, the Internet allows you to put out videos, allows you to get stuff out there without gatekeepers or tastemakers needing to sign off on it. And then, you know, your tribe can find you and... and I think the me me doing my public access show is a big example of that in my life where it was like, oh, this is like the island of misfit toys, but all the misfits are finding it via the internet. <laughs> Once you've been awake for 36 hours straight, you can experience blackouts and hallucinations. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I've been awake for over 36 hours straight. <laughs> Welcome to the Chris Gethard Show. My basic cognitive functions failed about five hours ago when I almost threw up trying to learn to speak Italian. <laughs> Now, hosting a TV show, it's pretty hard, and and I decided to make it much harder for myself because I am a broken person. I have low self-esteem, and I was raised Catholic in New Jersey. Suffering is like catnip to me. I'm also doing this because talk show hosts, they're not supposed to be vulnerable. Hosts are supposed to give the impression that everything's gonna go smoothly, like guys who juggle chainsaws or British people. It does offer up more potential. More people are making their living through creative stuff than than they were. Like a higher percentage of the people doing comedy that I know are actually living off of it now. And that's so great. I think one of the big fears is, you know, a lot of these jobs are ones where you're not in the unions anymore. You're not getting right. health insurance anymore. Like you can make a living, but the standard of living is not going to be as high. So you maybe need to adjust your expectations or live a little bit more within your means. I actually always encourage people to live below their means. I always, anytime I actually have a year where I make money, I I don't change my lifestyle. I just put that money away so that when, when the bottom falls out, it's, it's there. And, and, you know, I know like I'm, I'm friends with tons of musicians too. And so many of my musician friends, they're not living in Brooklyn anymore. They're living in weird little towns in the Catskills where you, you can have the lowest overhead and, you know, just instead of renting rehearsal spaces, just have a basement uh, and 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 I think there's a lot more of that. I think there's a lot of people who are really scaling down um, 
how they're living and and what their expectations are in order to be artists. And I think that's really beautiful. I also think the bubble is going to burst on that with comedy in particular. Like, I think a lot of comedians are starting to rumble about that of like, this is not going to last forever where all these people get to live off this. It's It goes in waves and the bubble's going to burst at some point. So, you know, it's... I. I do fear a little bit for the amount of friends I have that don't have health insurance or backup plans. Chris, you know, you talk about cutting out the middleman and the gatekeepers in this, you, whether it's Lorne Michaels or the execs at Viacom and Comedy Central or Time Warner. You saw this enormous news uh, a week and a half ago with AT&T Wireless wanting to buy Time Warner, which has HBO and TNT and TBS and whatnot. And then on the other end of it, there's someone who you might be simpatico with is Louis C.K., who did something pretty revolutionary, I think, five years ago and offered his show up for kind of download. And he said, you know what? I'm I'm asking you as a content maker. I'm cutting out Ticketmaster. You don't have to worry about the Beacon Theater. You don't have to worry about being there. If you just want to see me in its most non-hydrogenated, unadulterated way, here it is for five bucks. Is there part of that that appeals to you um, right now kind of on a – on a kind of a micro level doing this, especially with your monologue. Because after all, there are, there are many people out there who cannot catch you in town. You know, if you take it off Broadway, go national, regional, they're not in the tri-state area, but they feel an affinity to you. People that want to watch you in South Africa or want to watch you in Australia. Talk to us about the opportunity there of kind of, you know, cutting to the chase and offering this to them kind of on demand for payment. It's really, it's an incredible thing that it exists. And I, like... Louis is a very inspiring guy, I think, to any comedian right now. And, and he's someone who I've always um, always looked up to around New York. And it's so cool. It's very cool for, for a guy who, you know, is definitely, I would say, like the biggest comedian in the world right now. And especially when he chose to do that, to kind of draw a line in the sand and say, I'm going to go outside corporate interests uh, and do it my own way. It was just so cool. It was so cool to see. And, and he sets the bar for everybody else, which is great. And, you know, I, I have heard some comedians kind of rumble about that of like, oh, now do I have to give my thing away for $5? Like if he's doing it. Um, so some people, I but think, why are does like, it oh, have, why does it have to be so binary? On the other end of it, I see one of my favorite shows of the past few years was uh, Big Time in Hollywood, Florida, which was on Comedy Central. It had Ben Stiller behind it, had Cuba Gooding Jr. co-starring in it. It was this hilarious concept. They had Jason Alexander doing cameos. It was it was like absurdistan, and it was so great, and they leaked the first two episodes to Gawker, but Comedy Central didn't renew it. And I'm thinking, wow, if the likes of Ben Stiller and Cuba Gooding Jr., I mean, Oscar winner and talented guy who's been in various movies as gross billions of dollars, if they still are at the beck and call of the major TV distributors and film studios, there's really no hope for the little comedian. I mean, it's completely flattened out there. It is terrifying. It can be really terrifying. You know, like if you if you realize, as I did at a certain point, oh, I am not the thing they want, you got to figure out how to get they out of the equation. And it is very daunting. Um, and I'm very, very lucky that I, I managed to figure out a way that that works for me. And I think so much of it is about at the end of the day, if you are an artist and you're ready to, you know, like, like there, I think to be an artist, you kind of have to be ready to live and die by it. You know, like if you really need to do it, I, th I think you kind of need it. And not to be melodramatic, I think every artist needs a moment of reckoning where you're going to get beat down and smacked down so much that you need to really wonder, is, do I need to do this? Because if I don't need to do this, why would I do this? Like, why would I do something that's so unlikely and, and where you face so much rejection? And, uh, and, and I think at the end of the day, once you decide you need to do it, the, the real power that artists always have is that they create the thing. And at the end of the day... If you need to do it, the only thing you really need to do is get it in front of as many people as you can. And I think Louis' choice was a real illustration of that. And I think, um, you know, one of the reasons that a lot of people don't want to work with mainstream outlets is because of the exact stuff that you said, is that, you know, meddling development executives or people who have the ability to cancel it with little explanation, who, um, you know, who can control how many people see your work, it's a scary thing. So... For me, it's it's at the end of the day, it's let's get it in front of as many people as you can. And, and if it's something that speaks to those people, those people will find ways to support you artistically, financially, all those things. And it's a career leap of suicide. faith. It is a leap of faith. Oh, I mean, huge. obviously, the biggest leap of faith you ever take was, was with career suicide. I mean, if I were going to, you know, and you get, who was it, Judd Apatow, 
backing it, yeah. right? I mean, that yeah. is a huge imprimatur. You could say a mainstream, like the main curator in chief of talent, of comedy talent that could take you to a big studio. But I would be very worried. Like, could you imagine if you were pitching this in a treatment, if you were invited to Burbank and they'd be like, oh my gosh, you're going to get into you know topics about self-cutting and alcoholism and the various medications you took and it was pegged to that suicide and you're going to alternate between laughter and crying and stuff. I, as a legacy media executive in an environment that's shrinking, would kind of run away from that. Yeah, big time. But I think I think Judd is a real outlier. Judd Apatow has been, he kind of came out of nowhere on this. I, I knew him a little bit. I'd met him a, a, maybe twice and he had heard about this show and really... We ran into each other one night. He asked about it, and and I think he's such a he's such a crazy example of a gatekeeper. But he, you know, there's that legendary story that when Freaks and Geeks got canceled, he 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 kind of said, "I'm going to make every person from that show as big a star as possible." Mm. And he is someone who who even in giving me notes on the show, constantly is saying like, "I want this to be what you want it to be." So here's my thoughts, but whatever you need this thing to be, go make it that and. To have someone who is as influential as he is also say, I, my my role, one of one of his roles in this is like, I'm going to box out all the naysayers. They might say no to you, but they're less likely to say so no to me. So it's an incredible, incredible rabbi to get. Oh, yeah. When he's like, it's go time, let's do it. And I will box you out breathing room and allow you to just be who you need to be on this. It's it's really incredible. And and I'm so psyched. And, and um, you were saying you were saying before about the show, like... But trying to get it out there to people who don't have the chance to come to New York. And that's extremely important to me because especially with the topic of the show, I'm like, in New York, everybody's in therapy. Like everybody, <laughs> like Philip Roth was writing about being in therapy in the 60s, you know, like it, it's hard to talk about here, but it's very important for me to try to get this thing seen on a broader level. Because mm-hmm. to me, the real thing is like, I bet there's some teenage kid right now in Kansas or Missouri or Texas where it's probably so much harder to talk about it than it is for me as a 36-year-old in New York City. Um, and it's really important for me to try to get things into into those people's hands where maybe maybe it's true that no one's talking about it, even around here, even in the Northeast. Yeah, like in, in Manhattan, there's a Tinder for therapists, right? No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> Is that true? I wouldn't even be surprised. I like didn't even know you were kidding until you oh, said. Oh, there's but there's many apps. There's Talkspace and many other apps that uh, oh, yeah. give you uh, give you a therapist on your uh, on your phone. A few minutes ago, you mentioned people being able to find their tribe and and your show being sort of like the island of misfit toys. And and uh, uh, another twofold question. I it strikes me that um, you know we are often faced with the chicken or the egg scenario right now, and. I wonder if you're speaking out and people like you speaking out in the way that you do just sort of sheds light on the fact that everyone is a member of the island of misfit toys and 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 we're all weird and we all have our issues and our challenges and when a person sees someone like you saying it out loud they feel that much more allowed to have ownership of their own peccadillos as it were. And hold that thought. I was just inspired in a kind of a Chris Gethard show way to follow that up before you answer Chris with Everybody hurts. <laughs> Take comfort in your friends. This time. Wow. Go ahead, answer. You are. You seem like you must be great at karaoke. Great. You <laughs> Not seem like you're a great you, guy to have dude, around. After watching your show online, I was like, what in the world is this thing? I can ask you anything, right? You you had yeah. me, you know, you, you've clamped your nipples again. I'm gonna say it like oh my we could talk about anything. So go ahead and answer that. Well, and and yeah. actually, to follow up before before you answer that, um, how much <laughs> how much is having a champion like Judd Apatow to kind of get those um, roadblocks out of your way even more important when you have this you know sort of really important personal message to uh, to express? Well, I think it I think it's hugely important, and there you know I've had other people who have been like real encouragers and champions, like Mike Birbiglia. Um, really pushed me to do this show. Ira Glass came and saw this show and really gave me some kind words. And, you know, when you have people like that, it really just encourages you to keep going. And and uh, it also, to realize, like, I'm saying this thing that doesn't feel great or doesn't feel like a likely success. And then you have some people who can make, you know, make success a little more likely um, come along. It's, it's, it's hugely inspiring. And and I do hope, I do hope that there's people out there who maybe realize, like, 
things uh, every everybody can feel this way sometimes. And and if you feel this way to a severe level, as I have at many points in my life, like that doesn't mean you're broken. That doesn't mean there's something inherently bad about you. Like like I'd like to think people can look at me now and say like, oh, this guy's actually like done some cool stuff. He's married. He owns a home. Like exactly. he's not he's not this messed up, broken person. Like you know, what one of the things that distresses me the most is is like. When I think about kids who like know, like like I knew, I knew something was really off with me when I was about 11, 12 years old, and I didn't got, I didn't get treatment till I was 22, and it had really hit a scary place because I was crashing cars and stuff, and that was because I felt like it was like bad. I felt like it was like really not okay to admit that I was going crazy, even though I was well aware of it. And 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 one of the things that stresses me out the most is like, you know what? One of the main times when you hear someone takes antidepressants is is like when they shoot up a movie theater. Like that's one of the only times this gets talked about. And you think about that though, when you look at it, when one of these mass shootings happens, one of the things that's always reported is what antidepressants these people were and taking. And they're completely vilified as a person with a mental illness. And most yes. most people with a diagnosed mental mental health issue are, you know, safe and would never do something like that. Yes, absolutely. And it, it becomes this discouraging thing where they make it feel like a you know, like correlated or 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 right. or causal, and and it's like, like to me, like when I I was going nuts. I was like, you know, that was so true. That that because like that guy, that guy who thought he was the Joker, and he shot up the right. movie theater. It's brutal. It's awful. It's awful. But I remember reading articles that were listing, oh well, he was on these medications, and it made me so mad because I'm like, you know, who I guarantee is the most upset today. It's his shrink. Right. His shrink got in the trenches and tried. If that guy was on medication, that means there was someone trying so hard to say, hey, maybe you're not the joker. Right. And maybe you can take medicines and just like really sort of like even out and, and live a life that's not tormented by these demons. And then it didn't work. And whoever these people are that are really trying and prescribing, those people should be patted on the back, not not made not, you know, it, it shouldn't it shouldn't happen. It shouldn't it, that shouldn't happen. It drives me nuts that when when people do things that are very clearly crazy, that the craziness is so highlighted and that the treatment is offered up as proof of craziness, not as an attempt uh, to make things to better. Right. Yeah. Because all that message sends is, well, if you seek out help now, that's on your resume. Now that's right. now you're certified. It's been now there's a stamp on that. And I think there's a lot of issues with that. There's a lot of uh, my understanding, not that I haven't looked into it too deeply. My understanding is that if you go on antidepressants, it makes it a lot harder to adopt a child. Right. That's a problem to me. Mm-hmm. That's an that's a reason to not get treatment. Well, especially there's, in a society where, you know, 50 percent of the population is on some form of antidepressant or anti-anxiety yeah. or, you know, I mean, it's a it's a regular occurrence now. And we're not allowed to talk about it. And I know a lot of people have told me, yeah, you know, like I uh, I don't have a steady job. I have to like interview a lot or I'm a freelancer and I, uh, I don't want to do it because, you know, I'm, I'm scared if people find out like potential employers could find out that I'm crazy if I'm on medications. And it's like, well, not taking the medications doesn't make you not crazy. It makes you untreated right, and crazy. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's, and it it's, makes your life so much harder. Yes. And there's so many... So many reasons we set up to be ashamed of it and so many reasons that that it's actually – I can say it. There's so many reasons where it's actually probably smart to not get treatment if you want certain things to happen in your life career-wise. Right. That adoption thing is a huge thing for so many people. Like we, we actually set up these barriers where it's a good idea to not get treatment and that is – so wrong. It's just so wrong to me. It's so wrong, you know? Chris, the, in, the few, the, in the few minutes that yeah. we have left, I just want to leave it open-ended to you. Where are you headed? Where do you see yourself in five years? Uh, where? What's the best case scenario for you with Chris Gethard career suicide and if this gets picked up? And you've certainly gotten just oodles of mainstream press, underground press, millennial press, uh, you know, old fogies like us here. Uh, <laughs> just you, you finish it for us. Well, my run with career suicide ends on January 8th, and I'm sure on January 10th, I'll be panicking about what's next. Um, there are, I think I might tour the show around. I, I hear that they want to do it in London, which feels fancy and cool, so we'll do that, and then hopefully the Chris Gethard show comes back, and and uh, and and we'll just try to keep the momentum rolling, and and, and you know what, I've, I've, I've put a lot of thought lately into, like, 
I did manage to find my own way to do things. And I did have a lot of banging my head against the wall feeling like everyone's telling me I'm good, but no one wants to give me a job. How can I fight through that? And and there's a lot of other weirdos. There's a lot of other weirdo comedians, especially around New York. And I really would love to transition to a point where I'm less the public face of, of things I do and more maybe behind the scenes helping out some of these other people who I think are doing really brilliant underground things that's not mainstream. Like I'm I'm wondering if maybe I'm getting to a point of notoriety where I could help them maybe not have to go on public access TV. Well, Chris Gethard, I have to say, talking about transition, the next big transition for you, and I hope I'm not speaking out of school here, is you are being interviewed by two Jews in studio, and we are happy <laughs> to vouch for you for, for full conversion. You've given up the bottle, you can give up the church, the rosary beads, everything, say sorry to mom and dad. <laughs> I think you're ready. You, you have Judd Apatow rabbying for you, so. Uh, I will hook it up, my man. Just you make the call. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I tell you, I, I gave up the rosary beads many years ago, but uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm looking to dive headfirst back into religion, but I would certainly love to be a member of the tribe someday. <laughs> the doors, sure. the consider yourself inducted, sir. We That's would Chris. Love to have you. Chris Gethard, uh, comedian. <laughs> he is behind the genius monologue uh, off Broadway. Chris Gethard, career suicide. Uh, I really appreciate it. And here in studio with me, Aaron Mahone of It Runs. In the Family fame, and her book is Life, Motherhood, and the Pursuit of Sanity. You are both uh, menches, Jewish, Catholic, whatever. As are you, my friend. I appreciate it. Describe your show, because it's very strange. It is. It's very weird. It's very unusual, but I like it. I think it has a good heart. You can watch it all online. We, we got a lot of great people. We got the world's greatest dancer, Rob Malone. We got the human fish. We got a guy named Phil Jackson, not the basketball coach, a different guy named <laughs> Phil Jackson. This last week, we did a show on Wednesday where I was blindfolded the whole time. And I didn't know what was going on. So the next day I watched the show and only then did I realize that my friend Drew was dressed as a horse using a fishing pole to dangle a two foot long sausage in front of my face the whole show, <laughs> the entire time. So that's our show. It's really smart comedy. I salute you. Thank you. Thank you. You're, you're in the comedy. You're in a good place. Thank you. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to NPR New York City. We are on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast. Find us on the Twitters at Full D Radio. Also on Facebook at Full D Radio. Like us, love us everywhere on iTunes, on NPR One, whatevs. Um, I'm sure we'll be on Grinder soon enough. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. <laughs> So